Hello and welcome to The Russia File. I'm Isabella Tabarovsky, and my guest today is Mikhail Fishman, a prominent independent Russian journalist, broadcaster, and author of a new book, The Successor, the story of Boris Nemtsov and a country in which he didn't become president. The book paints a portrait of Boris Nemtsov, possibly the most important opposition politician in post-Soviet Russian history. Nemtsov was gunned down on a bridge under the walls of the Kremlin in February of 2015. Nemtsov's story is deeply intertwined with the past 30 years of Russia's history, and it helps us understand many of the issues that we're facing today, including the personality and motivations of Vladimir Putin and Russia's war in Ukraine. In the book, Fishman tells the story of Nemtsov's rise from a region where he was a governor to the national stage where he attracted the attention of world leaders from Margaret Thatcher to Bill Clinton. Many expected him to succeed Boris Yeltsin as the president of Russia, but that is not what happened. Instead, the man who succeeded Boris Yeltsin was Vladimir Putin, and the history of Russia took a very different turn. We're presenting my conversation with Misha Fishman in two parts. This is part one. Misha, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Your book was published recently in Russian by Corpus. Its Russian title is Priemnik, Istoria Borisa Nemtsova i strany, v katoroi on ni stal prezidentem. The English translation is still being completed, but I really wanted us to have this conversation now because as I read the book, I was just struck by how incredibly timely and relevant it is. And so we'll get into it, but I actually want us to start by talking a little bit about your own story and about your background. I started as a journalist in the late 90s as a political reporter. That's how I knew Nemtsov, because I was following closely his first campaign. I write about Russia and Russian political regime. And for the last several years, you've been on TV Rain. And TV Rain, of course, is a really important independent television channel in Russia, was persecuted heavily in itself. And you were there on the morning of February 24th, when Vladimir Putin declared war on Ukraine. What was that morning and day like? I anticipated this war. I I was talking about it on my shows uh, every Friday, starting from December. I was anticipating it, and I knew that if it would come, it would change everything, of course, including my own life. Wars always come together with a tightening censorship grip. So I, I knew TV Rain would not survive. I was sort of morally ready, but... Yet you can never get ready to a morning like that and to what happened on February 24th. It came as a shock, all this news, uh, Russian military shelling Kharkiv and shelling Kiev and starting its first assault uh, on Kiev. I had my show the next day and during these first days, there was little doubt that Putin will actually capture Kiev. And... uh, Yet, I claimed in my first wartime show that Putin has already already lost this war because it, it, it's impossible to win a people's war. And for Ukrainians, it's a people's war. And he would not never be able to control Ukraine anyway, even if he does conquer it and does capture Kiev and uh, Zelensky would flee. How long did TV Rain manage to stay on air before you were shut down? A little bit more than a week. Uh, I was on air live. It was March 1st. It was at around 8 p.m. at night. I was I was live talking about what was going on in, in Ukraine. It was really horrible. And at that very minute, the TV Rain site website was blocked by Russian official media watchdog. 
And at that very moment, we all knew that's it, that it's, it's, it's over, that Tiverin would not survive this time. And, and during next couple of weeks, I guess every independent media outlet in, in Russia was shut down. When and how did you know that you had to get out of the country? I left the country the next morning. It was a very sensitive moment that evening on March 1st, when the website was shut down. Nobody knew what's, what's next. The new legislation banning, uh, even calling this war a war, was already introduced by, by, by the parliament. And it was clear that once it would be signed by, by Putin, it would be used as a tool to repress every independent voice about this war. So I left the next morning. That's when the majority of Russian independent journalists left. So where are you now? First, I flew with my wife and our daughter to Baku in Azerbaijan. We wanted to get to Georgia, but I was denied entry to Georgia, me personally. So we found ourselves stuck in Baku for a while and then managed to get to Israel, where I am now, for more than three months already. A fairly uh, typical story in many ways, unfortunately, for, for a lot of Russian independent journalists who tried to leave the country. So, so let's talk about the book. I want to ask you, why is it important for people to read a book about Boris Nemtsov now? The book is called The Story of Nemtsov and of the Country in Which He Didn't Become President. And, and, and it's a meaningful title because it's not only, only about him. It's, it's a journey, I would say, together with Nemtsov through Russia's history from the starting point, from, from when Russia emerged after the Soviet Union collapsed. And the idea of the book is that the story of Nemtsov as, a, as an individual, as a, as a political leader, as a person, is the story of Russia. And I do not separate one from the other. And his, Nemtsov's fate, if you will, his career, his path, represents Russia's path, what Russia went through. If not Gorbachev's perestroika, Nemtsov would never uh, enter political life to start with. His success story of the first half of the 90s and uh, his failures of the second half of the 90s, the Yeltsin era, reflect the dramatic dramatics of, uh, of that time. And uh, of course, it was inevitable that he would oppose Putin, which, which happened when Putin came to power. And I have to say that Putin's invasion of Ukraine proved this idea to be right. I mean that that fate is Russia's fate. That that's the idea of the book. And Nemtsov was murdered in early 2015 during the first phase of the war in Ukraine. And it was the first phase of the war in Ukraine that had him. We can elaborate on that if you if if you wish. And then seven years later, the same war is is killing Russia right in front of our eyes. Not only Ukraine. Of course, Ukraine is the main victim, but Russia is dead too. Exactly. And as, as I was reading the book, I kept thinking it, it just how relevant so much of it is. You kind of see the, the roots of what, what we're seeing today. You see in that history that you're telling and in, in, in those stories that you're telling. So I wanted to ask you, how did the book come out in the first place? Why did you decide to write it? It's not your first time that you kind of immersed yourself in the story of Boris Nemtsov. 
No, not the first time, but usually it's the opposite. Usually books turn into movies, but, but we made the movie first. I was approached after a few months after Nimtsov was murdered. I was approached as a, as a political uh, journalist who knew Nimtsov and who shares the same values in Nimtsov that to write some sort of a script for a, for a film about, about Nimtsov. And they took us a year and a half and uh, me uh, and Vera Krichevska, we made the film about about Nimtsov and about Russia. That's when I get grabbed by this idea that, that Nimtsov is, represents Russia and its path. That's when I, I got it. And the film is based on this idea. But, and, then, and then again, I was approached as, uh, well, let's, uh, let's turn this film into, into a book. And I started thinking, yes, well, okay, sure, why, why not? And the book was published actually already after the war began and after the repressions, the crackdown. Was there a fear that it wouldn't come out? Yeah, I would add that, that the book is, of course, much more detailed than the film. It really goes deeper into, into, into why, what happened and what triggered what and uh, how political life evolved and why decisions were made as they, as they made. And I knew that I was late. That's the irony of history that I had to leave Russia, but my, my book actually made it to, to bookstores and came out in early April and is available across Russia, basically in every major bookstore. And that's very ironic. It's very ironic. And, and it's also excellent news. And I should say also for our listeners who do read Russian, that you can get this book electronically. Let's delve into the book. And I want us to start by talking first about Nemtsov as a person. So if you were to describe him as a person, what characteristics would you name as the most important and prominent ones? And also, what was important for him personally as a human being and as a politician? What were his values? Nemtsov is a very specific uh, political leader because he is very, mm, he's very bright, he is very open, loud, handsome, and charismatic type of person and cherishing liberal values. This is, this is obvious. From the very, very start, he, is a, he was a true Westerner. He was, he was a true believer in Russia as a part of Europe and global world. I'd say his most important quality, which actually made it who he actually became, the symbol of, of free Russia, I think it's his honesty. That's the, 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 his main quality. He, uh, he is honest, open, transparent, and not corrupt from the very start to the very end. And this is crucial, I think, because Russia's biggest problem that led to Putin's rule and then to his tyranny and then and now to is Russia's elite weakness and uh, irresponsibility and uh, appetite for corruption. And uh, Nemtsov was different. He had this core within him inside him that never in his life, never through his political career, through, would it be his governor's time or his, when he was in Russia's government or, or later, he was always incredibly scrupulous and nothing never stuck to him as he, nothing dirty in his, uh, in his career. I don't really know any other political leader like that in, in Russia. Well, and it's interesting, you tell a story in the book, it also, I think that episode appears in the film, when in the very early years, he is, there is a debate on TV and all of the politicians are promising something. And he says something very different. 
What does he say in that episode that, that it won the audiences over? It's the first election to, of members of Russian Council, Parliament, let's say. First really free election in Russia, some kind of debate. And Nemtsov, he was, what, 30 years old? And he looked, again, different from any other, any other candidate at this, at this debate because they, these were sort of kind of um, representatives of Soviet, still Soviet elite. And he was young, handsome, big curly hair, not even wearing a suit. And then he goes, so many people around here say so many beautiful things. And I will just, I will just say one thing, I won't lie. And, and, it, and it actually worked. Nimtsov really understood how to connect with those people. And people called him later in, in Putin's era. He, he had this label of being a populist. But what is populism? I am populist, Yeltsin said in very early 90s or late, late 80s, because because this is what makes me different from all these Soviet leaders who are disconnected from, from the nation. And that, that was also, also true about Nimtsov. He in, never lied, tried not to lie, and he, but he always wanted to make sure that he is heard and he, his message is clear. Well, and it's interesting because I think in many ways Nimtsov as a politician would actually be really understandable to Americans. And maybe that's why Westerners really connected to him and really liked him. But, you know, Americans say that all politics is local. And Nemtsov really did begin his political career locally, really wanting to make sure that, as, as you say, some would call it populism, but, but he really wanted to help the people of his region, the, the Nizhny Novgorod region. And, and so he didn't grow out of corruption or out of buying influence, as you say. He really grew very, very naturally from the bottom, from the grassroots up. And it was something very rare and unique in those early post-Soviet years and for Russia in general. You know, I wonder if you can tell us just one story of his achievements, local achievements, and that's the story of the building of, I think you say, 5,000 kilometers of roads in the region. And what did he do to check their quality? Because I think that that story is, it illustrates something really important about him and about how things were in Russia. The year is 1994 or 1995, something like that. And uh, as, as a governor, he had to check the newly constructed roads and he, he put a glass of vodka on the car. And if it didn't splash while he was driving on, on the road, then he approved the road. And uh, of course, again, this is a PR stunt. Of course, it's a, the, the, the gesture designed to show that it's a people program. It's a project designed for people because we know that Russians drink <laughs> vodka. But again, he was, as a governor, was truly connected with, with people. He, he, was a, he was a reformer. He started privatization. He started agricultural reform and also made him different from, from many others is that he was very open and accessible to people. He cared about people and he was very, very accessible. And again, it's such a contrast with the Soviet years, and that's, that's what made him really stand out. You know, another really important theme of the book, and it was also the really important theme of your film, which called Nemtsov a man who was too free. So the, the question of freedom, because freedom was really important for, for Nemtsov. And I think you say that the early years of Yeltsin's rule were a period when Russia had real freedom of a kind that Russia had never had, except maybe for the period of February through October of 1917. The problem was that freedom had won, but democracy hadn't. 
Can you explain that? Yes. Well, as a, as a researcher, as a, as a journalist, I was so much enjoying writing about early 90s because it, it was truly the time when Russia was free. Imagine that after 70 years of Soviet, Soviet rule, Russia truly becomes a free country. It starts, of course, as, you, as, as we all know, under, under Gorbachev with glassness, yes. It starts, Russia's freedom starts as freedom of the press. But then it evolves and uh, freedom of the press, freedom of conscience, fr every private freedom you can imagine, freedom to earn as much as you want, freedom to go wherever you want, something that Soviet people could never even dream about. And free elections from 1990 until 1996, let's say, every election on federal level was, was totally free of every, any kind of governmental federal pressure. Yet, democratic institutions were weak to start with. And second, and very importantly, nobody understood what democracy is, what, it, uh, what, uh, what actually is democracy. Well, to give you an example, electing Yeltsin in 1991 as Russia's president, that was a truly historic moment because never before the Russian nation elected its leader. Yet during this very symbolic, very representative, very historic election, there was no real competition uh, because everybody understood that Yeltsin would win. And Yeltsin in the first place knew that he would win. So there was an assumption back then, that it's enough to elect a leader who would enjoy public support, as Yeltsin did. And that would lead us to, to democracy. If you trust your leader, if the nation trusts its leader, it is democracy. But it's, of course, not that simple. That's what we know about much more now, because we learned during these decades what is democracy, how it has to be grassrooted, how institutions actually work, what, what are institutions of power, what are checks and balances. We, nobody knew that in Russia. And that's what Russia was. It was free, but democratically it was not established. So let's talk about Nemtsov's relationship with Yeltsin, because when we talk about the successor, that's who Nemtsov was supposed to succeed. He was supposed to become the successor to Yeltsin. And Yeltsin and Nemtsov were famously close. How did Yeltsin notice Nemtsov and bring him close? What attracted Yeltsin to Nemtsov? Well, the year again is 1991. Imagine Nemtsov, as we already described him, loud, visible in any company, very handsome, bright, big as a, per as a person kind of individual that you always notice in the, if he's in the room. So they connect during the coup, Nemtsov and, and Yeltsin, because they were both in the uh, Supreme Council's building, which became the headquarters of, uh, of the resistance. To and you're talking about August of, of and, 1991. Uh, August yes, of yes, August, mm -hmm. August 19, yes, August 1991. And after the coup failed, the question arose, who would Yeltsin appoint uh, as, as uh, head of uh, Nizhny Novgorod government? Because before that, it was a communist government in, in Nizhny Novgorod. The, 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 these communist authorities supported the coup and were dismissed. And Yeltsin knew nobody, so uh, he appointed Nimtsov, and as Nimtsov recalled himself, gave him a chance. If you manage well, I will let you work. If you will not, then you will be fired. So that's how their relationship started in August 1991. And in December 1991, Nintov was appointed head of, head of Nizhny Novgorod. 
you know, I want to ask you, at what point, is there a specific point when Yeltsin realizes that he views Nemtsov as a possible successor? He liked him from the very, very, very start. I think that he connected with him on a personal level as well, because Nemtsov was anti-bureaucrat, yes? He was very different in his style and in his approach. And uh, yet he was loyal, basically, to, to Yeltsin, though he never, he not always voted as Yeltsin asked him, but he never crouched. He was always full of his own personal dignity. And that's what I think Yeltsin also liked about him. But what happened politically was also important because while Yeltsin's government was losing its support, Nemtsov was sort of aside. He was a reformer. He was doing his own reforms in, in Nizhny Novgorod, but he was on his own and he was not seen by the nation as responsible for all these difficulties and uh, uh, problems that, and uh, all this struggling that, that the nation had to go through during Gaidar's, Yegor Gaidar's reforms. So while, uh, while reformers on federal level were going down, Nimtsov was, was going up. He was very popular. By the end of 1995, I guess he was probably one of the one of two, three most popular governors across Russia. He was a national phenomenon. So for Yeltsin politically, it was very obvious, I would say, to stick to Nimtsov as a possible successor, because he is he's on the same on the same page with him. He is part of his larger team. Yet he is still reliable politically. He once met with Clinton in, I guess it was 1993, and even at that time he already pointed at Nimtsov as his possible success. Did he really believe in it? We will never know. But in 1990s, Nimtsov comes to Moscow from Nizhny Novgorod as a part of Yeltsin's government. Yeltsin, of course, has in mind that Nimtsov is most likely next Russia's president. I do want to ask you about this idea of a successor. I mean, you did refer, we talked a little bit about how in Russia freedom had won, but but democracy didn't. Still, the, the idea of a successor is actually deeply undemocratic. I mean, Yeltsin was a Democrat. He really believed in democracy. I think that's pretty clear. So why did he need a successor? Why couldn't he just let the nation decide the next president in in, in an honest and open election? Yeltsin, I would say, wanted Russia to be part of global civilized world and a democracy, but he probably didn't know what democracy is. He didn't really understand it. He understood about freedoms. He understood about, about Soviet past. He understood about KGB. That he knew. But what is democracy, he probably never fully understood. And yes, of course, you're totally correct. The concept of successor is undemocratic by by nature because uh, because it was it's it's not to to a ruler to pick the next one right it's to it's for the nation to decide but the problem of succession in russian politics is of course deeply connected to the political climate in russia from the early 90s that the, basically the same thing that i already said that democracy didn't work freedom yes existed but not but not democracy what happened and, and that's, the, that's the tragic development of, of Russia. That's, that's this first misstep on uh, Russia's path to freedom and democracy. The, the misstep that, uh, that happened uh, on, the, on the first day when, when Russia actually emerged as a new country 
after the collapse of the Soviet Union, is that political life uh, turned into, into a zero-sum game between political actors, notably be between the president and, and the, the parliament. They started a fight on what, how ref Russia's reforms should look like until Putin came to power and suppressed the parliament as an institution. It was the, the fight, the political battle in which the winner takes all. Democracy isn't supposed to work like this. Democracy is supposed, that, is supposed to, to work very differently. When If you lose an election, it doesn't mean that you lose your resources, your influence, your, your financial capital, your, or even freedom, or even life. It means that you just don't have power anymore. Okay, but everything rest is still with you. But in, in Russia, the stakes became so high from the very start. So if, if you cannot actually lose an election comfortably, that means that you need a successor. And that's how the idea of successor actually emerges. You, if you're always fighting and the stakes are so high, you need to secure your future. You cannot divide democracy from your personal future in which you won't be at the helm. That's why you need a successor who would secure your own position. Well, and of course, we know that the eventual successor was Vladimir Putin. It wasn't Nemtsov. And that's what makes the story that you tell so poignant, because it's impossible to read this book without asking yourself the whole time, what might have been, right? How different would Russia be today if Nemtsov, in fact, had become a successor? Putin was, was chosen as a successor on the same, the motivation was the same. He had to secure the path and also the uh, and also the future of those who picked him right as a, as a successor exactly. and and you couldn't tell one thing from the other that's why he was a successor exactly exactly i want us to talk about and particularly that first chechen war it occupies chechnya in general occupies a significant significant part of the book and i want us to talk about it because there are lines that go from that war that first war, second war as well, but especially the first war, to Russia's war against Ukraine today, as it seems to me. So the first Chechen war was one of the pivotal moments in Russia's post-Soviet history. And in fact, you say that Chechnya became Russia's Vietnam. Can you explain why? Nobody expected the war in Chechnya to, to turn into, into such a horrific war as it actually was. It was thought of as a, as a military operation that would last for well, uh, two months maximum, and then it will be over. Nobody could even think that kind of resistance that Dudaev and his forces would actually be able to, to demonstrate. And it turned into a really horrific war, which took lives of tens of thousands of inhabitants in Chechnya and of thousands of Russian soldiers. It political input was huge. It led to second Chechen uh, war in, and it designed the Russia's future. Yeltsin lost this war. This war turned into a defeat and this defeat grew as a, as a syndrome inside the national conscience. This defeat certainly gave a boost to, to this overwhelming frustration and resentment which became Putin's political platform. We can put it this way. So that's the, but it, to make long story short, yeah. You know, I, I hear journalists, some journalists who covered that first Chechen war, say that 
Russia's war in Ukraine today really reminds them of that war in terms of the level of destruction, the mass murder of civilians, even what you already mentioned, kind of the expectation that it will be a blitzkrieg, right, and a completely unrealistic assessment of Russian military strength. Do you see similarities like that between the two? When we talk about similarities between what's going on in Ukraine and war in Chechnya in 1995-1996, similarities are obvious. Yes, as we started with Putin's blitzkrieg, which failed, uh, and the, the war that he believed would last a month and he would control Kyiv in, in a week turned into in what we see now in a protracted, horrific military campaign. And the same was about how war in Chechnya started, because as I, as I said, nobody believed it would last that, that long, even in Chechnya. <laughs> but uh, it's not the only similarity, of course, because when we because, because military experts and human rights watchers, of course, uh, see many similarities in the war crimes of the Russian military in Ukraine now, and they see them as a, as a repetition of the same criminal actions uh, in Chechnya in middle 90s and then later in the second war in Chechnya. And, this, and it's the same logic, the same tactics, the same destroying cities, slaughtering civilians, torture, humiliation, rape, and everything we... Uh, uh, Everything we we know about this this war in Ukraine, of course, happened back then. But there are many many differences as well. Well, Important and one of the key differences in the Russian societies then was that there was an anti-war movement, which Nemtsov was one of the leaders of, if not the leader of. There were the soldiers' mothers were able to protest, and they played a massive role in turning the public opinion around. Why don't we see that today with Ukraine? This is a very good question. And I'm not sure that I know all the answers because it's very hard to understand why mothers of this war already took Russian lives on a much bigger scale than, than both wars in Chechnya combined. It's very hard to understand and explain why mothers keep silent when we know how it works. We know that now Russia's government is able to pay money officially to, to those who lose their relatives at the so-called special military operation in, in Ukraine, but it doesn't probably give us all the answers. I think what is important also is that in, in mid-90s, when the first war started, uh, Russian society was very different. Remember, Russia had free press. Russia was as free as never before. And everything made news. Television was free. It was reporting from Grozny, from, from Chechnya. And, uh, and, and the war itself across the nation was perceived as the war against freedoms. A major, all political parties back then, like liberals, but also, but also leftists and, and communists, saw the war as, uh, uh, as, as an authoritarian step against Russia itself and you know, big rallies against, against the war. And that was very different climate from what we have today after 20 years of Putin's propaganda. Propaganda actually works as we know now. This concludes part one of our discussion of Mikhail Fishman's book, The Successor, the story of Boris Nemtsov and a country in which he didn't become president. Please stay tuned for part two, where we will talk about the relationship between Putin and Nemtsov, Nemtsov's relationship with Ukraine, and what it all means for the contemporary moment. 
From the Canon Institute, this is Isabella Tabarovsky. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you on our next episode of The Russia File.